0: Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of your favorite DD podcast, Mastering Dungeons. That's right. I have it on authority that at least one person out there, this is their favorite. So, therefore, I'm talking to you. Yes, you. We appreciate you. Thank you. And I appreciate my co host, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, thanks for joining us yet again.
1: Well, it's a pleasure, Bob. <laughs>
0: You keep coming back for more, and that's what we love about you. That's yeah, what I no, appreciate about you, Teos.
1: It is the most fun I have all week, uh, I for sure. And and I had a fair amount of fun because, uh, you see, this little guy, this is my inspiration. Um, oh, oh, the, nice. the uh, the um, the Neverwinter MMO has gone to Spelljammer, mm-hmm. and I've been mm-hmm. jumping on a lot of Star Moth ships recently. Um, and, and it's, it's pretty fun. It's neat to see the Indian space in 3D. Kind of fun.
0: As opposed to 4D, which would be a little harder to make a mini for. <laughs> um, but speaking of the fourth dimension, we get emails and things from our listeners, some of whom are in the fourth dimension. Uh, not this week, but some week we'll, Maybe. we'll uh, get get a message from our fourth dimensional listeners. But one of our third dimensional listeners, a synthetic 20 via YouTube gave us a comment and a question, and I'm splitting these two up so we can take each one in its proper turn. So synthetic 20 first says regarding your last episode, the inhospitable nature of the gate towns can push players out into other parts of the outlands, which are incredibly dangerous. The inhospitable nature helps make travel into other areas an easier decision. Why would you stay in the safety of a place when it does not want you there? At least that's been my experience running game in this setting. It kind of turns adventure into a more reasonable profession. Uh, And so... I'm I'm using Synthetic20's question or comment here, but we got a lot of great feedback from our listeners about, oh, this is how you use the Outland. If you use the Outland this way, it makes perfect sense. Or if you do this, it makes perfect sense. And I love how game smart and how story smart our, our, uh, our listeners are because we get great feedback like this. However, nowhere in the book with the words on the page that we actually read does it say this is how you do adventures in the outland and that's what we're talking about when we say not only does this content setting content need to tell you what it is it needs to tell you how to use it so you know we we love these ideas we might even have these ideas on our own uh it sounds like a lot of people who commented on this, like played the original Planescape, right, or have played right. versions along the way, and they're like, "Oh, this is this is what they mean." That's great, unless you haven't bought or read the previous stuff, yeah. which I would guess a lot of people who are buying it are in that category, such as me.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I have a couple of thoughts about this, and I think everything you're saying is is spot on. Um, the setting should start with telling you what the point of things is and Mm -hmm. it should drive towards that. So whatever, because, because this is a construct, right? Like we started with a blank page and you wrote up a thing. So what's the point of that thing? And it should line up to create then a play experience. It shouldn't be that it sounds like one thing, but the play experience is another. If you do this, you know, one shiny trick, or if you run at a certain, at a certain angle, it should work kind of as established because we created it. Otherwise, go back to the blank page and create something else, right? Yeah. You can still work to speak to nostalgia, but you know, make it some other experience. And in 5e, they leaned into making it especially kind of hard and uh, hard to change things, hard on the players as an experience. Um, Everything feels like that Star Trek episode where you're going to very quickly go, oh, wait, things aren't great here. Mm -hmm. And why? What is the play experience we're looking for there? Is it to shove you into the planes beyond? Go into the gate, get out of here. Is it to go back into the outlands? But the outlands aren't really well defined. So why don't you define it if that's where my play is? I agree with you. This is all it's all a little misaligned.
0: (laughs) See what I did there? Mm, I, I see what you did there. When when Joe Rosso and I did our talk at Gamehole Con, we talked about creating worlds for different vehicles. So you might world build for a, a card game. You might world build for a movie. You might world build for a, a work of fiction or a role-playing game or a, a tabletop board game. And what you do with when you're building it may differ depending on that medium that you plan to use. And I feel like in these things we see, we're, we're getting partway there to the, what your setting needs to be for a role-playing game that you as the game master are going to build a story, a, an encounter, an adventure based on. Um, but we don't get that the full way this would be great right. if somebody was writing a uh, work of fiction. They, There's themes, there's encounters they could use, but this isn't that. This needs to be a tool that a game master is going to use to help create a story with their players. Uh, we got to. Comment along these lines from Man and Martin just this morning said that the possibility of a gate town being drawn into the outer plane is a great story hook. You can just imagine having the factions, one faction fighting to get the uh town to that, another faction fighting to stop that from happening. And again, yeah. this is great. That's, mm-hmm. I could see running a campaign based on that or an adventure based on that. But we never are told. By this setting guide, that players or game masters or creatures in the world know that this can happen. Right. If we're said, if 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 it's said player, you know, thing people know, who knows? Does everyone know? Or is it just certain powerful creatures know? Uh yeah, you know, we need that information. Or we at least need to hear, if you decide to make it part of your world where creatures know this can happen, this happens. Yeah. But unless we know we can't do anything with it
1: yeah and and it even goes back to i think you know the first time we were talking about planescape which the the question was raised of what's the point of having gates in all of these different places Mm -hmm. and 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 this came up i think on our discord where i was talking about you know really when i think about how i write an adventure as a dm right just my own home campaign i generally am thinking like you are in the ancient evil temple and the thing in the temple opens a portal to the nine hells and you're going to go through. I don't narratively think you need to get to the nine hells. So now you're going to go to sigil and then in sigil, find a portal. And from that portal, find your way to a gate town and from the gate town, go to the nine hells. Like that is so disconnected from my plot, Yeah. but there are so many. And it's fine to have raw materials, right? And this gives you a lot of raw mm-hmm. materials, but it's a little like, is this really how we play? It's it's almost like the point of Sigil is you're not sure what to do with your campaign. So go to Sigil and then have some weird adventures. And then from there, maybe have some weird adventures in a gate town and then maybe go to the planes or not.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And that leads into a synthetic 20s question. To turn this into a listener question, do you often run planar adventures? What planes do you think make the best or worst adventures and why? If you were designing your own set of planes, how would you approach that design?
1: Recording again. I'm um, good.
0: Me too. Res- Recording in progress. Cool. So to answer synthetic 20's question, I've got two things to talk about. I'm gonna do the first first, and then I'm gonna let Teos go and then I'll come back to my second. All right. So I I want the planes to be areas that change the very nature of the reality that the characters have come to expect. Mm. So I want them, the planes to challenge the characters in ways that they can't be challenged at the, on their home planes. I want to set the characters in a world and say, now, you know, the realities of this world, you get used to that. And then we're going to turn turn it on its head by sending you to Arcadia, to the Nine Hells, to the Abyss, to the Beastlands, wherever, wherever I want to tell a specific kind of story. That's what I want when I run play adventures.
1: Yeah, similarly. I mean, honestly, the, the, the thing that often resonates for me the most is when I've either played in or run adventures involving like the Feywild or the Shadowfell. Because of those factors you're talking about, it changes the expectations of everything. And it means that um, the world is is not what you expect. So there's engagement and interest, right? There, there, it's like a, the whole plane becomes a mystery. You want to resolve what what do I what can I do here, right? Things like with the Faye, where it's like um, that if they give you a gift, you must gift one back, right? Th- learning those kinds of things, or that that you know someone might be able to say a thing and it means this particular thing versus this other thing that it would elsewhere. Those kinds of expectations are really interesting, and you can draw from really neat influences like fairy tales or or, you know other things like that that resonate with the players in a kind of fun way um when i do outer planar things i often have a big dramatic plot in mind something like the rod of seven parts is being assembled and you're trying to back home stop this you know attack of all of these devils who are coming in to destroy valuna and and you must once again get the seven parts and some of them are in outer planes and so you're going through and chasing them and that could involve a thing like going to sigil to get information but it's all very plot right it's it's along the lines of the plot it's what i haven't really ever done is just hang around in sigil doing you know guard duty and rats in the cranium rats in the basement and things like that Mm -hmm. i haven't used it as a setting in that way and and it is not particularly appealing to me because it flips exactly what you're talking about It, it says here are these amazing things. Oh, by the way, they're mundane. And I don't generally want that in my game. Yeah.
0: When the last adventure I remember writing that was truly planar in nature was a fourth edition adventure called Flame's Last Flicker. Mm -hmm. And it was the fourth installment of the Flame Tetralogy Flame was the dragon that was in the very first Dungeon Magazine mm-hmm. uh, adventure. And so I got to write the fourth one for fourth edition on the anniversary of that first adventure and Dungeon Magazine launch. And so what I did was Flame became a Draco Demi Lich. So not a Draco Lich, not a Demi Lich, but a Draco Demi Lich that was serving Tiamat. <laughs> and what this, uh, what Flame was, tasked to do by tiamat was to drain the souls that were heading toward the plane that they were supposed to be going to and divert them to this other plane Mm -hmm. so the characters at very high levels got to go out into the planes into the the astral to deal with that but then go to these other planes and do very specific things for very specific reasons not only having to deal with the threats there, but having to deal with the planes themselves mm-hmm. and the environmental threats they bring and and that sort of thing. Yeah. So that's what I want when I run adventures. And the last part of the question was, if you were making your own planes, what would you do? And it would be exactly that. I would build them with the idea first of I need to challenge the characters. Not... In mythology, there's Hades, and I want to make this plane as much as possible like the Hades there. That could be a that could be a, a touchstone. That could be yeah. a prompt, but in the end, it's the game that I want, and the stories that could evolve from that game, as opposed to trying to keep it uh, consistent with some mythological imperative from you know 2,000 years ago. Right yeah absolutely okay well Teos, taos isn't gonna argue with me on this one so uh with that in mind we get to move on to our news and commentary section uh thank you synthetic 20 and everyone who chimed in on our outlands discussion but for our news this week we're going to start with a free inspiration deck handout Teos, could you tell us a little more about this
1: I would be glad to. So D&D Beyond has a uh, image that you can download um, that is a serves as a free handout for the book of many things. And it's called the Inspiration Deck. And this is an alternate approach to inspiration. And this is clearly kind of a marketing angle to say, hey, look, did you know that this book has all these optional rules to make your game interesting, different, maybe better? Um, So in this approach for inspiration you will draw a number of cards equal to the number of players and place those deck of many things cards face up on the table. When a player gains inspiration they select one of those face up cards and keep it for later use. Each card has its own unique effect which you find in this handout and in the table. When a player uses the inspiration they get to draw a new card face up from that communal hand and shuffle the used card back into the deck. So you kind of Constantly have this menu that you can choose from, and one thing that's nice is you have this visual reminder. Hey, get some inspiration because you get to get one of these cards, and I, and I think the players would know what that benefit is, but but uh but it creates this visual aspect of it. Um, another option is that when a player uses an inspiration card, the DM draws the top card from the deck and can use it at a later time to apply to NPCs or monsters. So you can download this image that shows the 22 cards. Uh, from the link in our show, news, show notes or look at D&D Beyond and should be one of the recent news items.
0: Yeah, I think this is really cool. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it is obviously marketing focused uh, You know, in terms of if you break it down in terms of game design, it's not perfect. because you know you put the cards down but the cards are only the cards so you have to keep passing the sheet around to say all right uh it's the two of hearts right okay what does that mean we've got six players so there's six cards out you have to keep track of what all six cards mean and then oh i've got inspiration all right which card should i take let me see the sheet again uh uh, we did something for aurora called at uh, the advantage system. and it's very, very similar to this where if you get advantage on a check, you can forego advantage to draw a card randomly from this deck and it has some of the similar things that are listed on the sheet and then you can at some point choose to play what's on this card or do it on behalf of a player and then we have different systems for you know letting the dm do things and so it's it's when i read this i was like oh that's funny that's uh that's sort of sort of yeah. similar to to uh-huh. what scott and i worked on for <laughs> for that uh but yeah i'm not saying they no, no stole yeah. anything yeah, yeah it's just it's 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 a cool idea um uh, it's too bad you couldn't actually print the cards to say what's on them on the card to make it a little easier but yeah my favorite it helps people
1: yeah I, I love convergent evolution like that like i um one of my favorites was in the act inc uh adventure that was created uh for for the movie event long ago the the movie theater event in cloud giants bargain there is a talking skull that mm-hmm. serves as your sort of tutor and advisor as you go through the adventure and at some point someone says oh yeah like morty and i'm like, Who? You know mm-hmm. the Talking Skull and the Planescape video game. I'm like, oh yeah, I never played that. I'm like, okay, well, well, there are items like it in Planescape. I'm like, yeah. If you say so. <laughs> yeah. Like, I was sure you were just using that. I'm like, uh, no, I don't think so. Like,
0: no. And no, you know, I did I, read I, some Planescape
1: stuff back like in the day, but I couldn't afford it back then, so I didn't buy a lot of it. And so yeah, it's funny. Yeah.
0: yeah. So that uh, that inspiration deck handout is available to you. on need beyond link in the show notes. We're getting a preview of the new D and D virtual tabletop at PAX Unplugged. Bald Man Games, who are running the D and D events at PAX, uh, will be doing this and including previews of the virtual tabletop as they run their games. Uh, thoughts on this, Teos? Any That's other pretty news? neat.
1: You know, they are looking, uh, I think, still for DMs. So you can, if you are software savvy. Uh, and are interested and in, will be there in, in Philly, you could uh, follow the link in the show notes or go to baldmangames.com slash Um But uh, I, I'm very curious to see, is this going to be... So far, like every version anyone talks about is the same one we saw in April and which was in the videos that people saw in like early April or late March. So I'm very curious, you know, at some point, do we see like another Focus. real version right something that's different and changes it up and that would be i think very interesting for everybody but uh in the yeah. meantime we've got a different vtt from D D, john
0: yeah we've got the maps the maps uh vtt has now added maps for castle ravenloft candlekeep mysteries rhyme of the Fosh, frost maiden taldori and wild beyond the Witchlight. Uh, a sale is in place to promote these additions and if you have a certain level of membership in D&D Beyond you already have access to maps. I still it's on my list of things to do. I have to check this out. I have way too much going on freelancing <laughs> to uh to do this, but I am going to check it out. And yeah, yeah it's it, it's interesting to see how how maps evolves compared to the virtual tabletop. And yeah. if if they converge at some point if they continue a separate uh design and development track it's it's interesting
1: uh, it super is it really is um and i love that this is one of these things where you hear like someone will go oh great i am totally going to use this and then someone else going this is the worst idea ever i hate everything about it wizards is the worst company <laughs> hear right. all the opinions on, on things like maps and it's just it always kind of cracks me up i'm, I'm nowhere in the extremes i'm <laughs> i'm very much in the middle and i'm glad there are more options i'm always good for more options
0: yep if you listen to our show you've already heard one panel from game HoleCon. you heard Teos and i doing uh mastering dungeons live but did you know that Teos was on other panels yes it's true And two of the panels that Teos was on are now available online. Tell us about these, Teos.
1: Yeah, these were really fun uh, panels and I think are quite informative. Like sometimes I'm on a panel and I'm like, yeah, you know, we did okay. I thought both of these were really useful with a lot of good audience questions and and a very diverse panel with lots of different takes on these subjects. So one is breaking into TTRPG design. Um, I shared some of the things that, you know, I've dealt with on the show, Success in RPGs. Um, but there were all kinds of, you know, there's, uh, you know, um, Matt, um, why can I think of his last name, Marvel role-playing game? Um, Forbeck. Forbeck, thank you. Um, talking about, you know, what it's like to be a full-time RPG designer with um, quadruplets, I think he had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to run the numbers, go, is it even possible? I guess it must be, and you know. Uh, so just so many different perspectives. Um, then we had another panel is narrative design and tabletop games talking about how this has become such an increasing angle. And I think you know Free League was uh, a big sponsor and they had one of the main designers from Free League games there. And he was only too happy to be on this panel because we kept talking about Free League uh, games and how well they they combine mechanics and narrative uh sort of examples as well as many other types of games
0: mm-hmm. and so both of those are at podcast.darker-days.org and the links there are also in our show notes
1: Yeah, and i should i, I was I on to say, of, oh i just want to say that um you know you mentioned earlier your panel um for ghostfire games and and you didn't record
0: that did you uh, I tried, but my computer ran out of mm. juice halfway okay. through.
1: Because um, it was a really good panel, and I did at least talk about it on my blog, alphastream.org. I kind of tried to summarize my experiences at Gamehole and, you know, what were things I learned from it. And I definitely took away some good lessons from from that panel. It was, it was a great, you and Joe Rasso had some really neat stuff. That whole idea of top-down, bottom-up setting world creation was really fantastic. And so I, t- I did talk about that on my blog for folks who are interested.
0: Awesome. The blog Mindstorm Press has put up a nice article proposing a simple reputation system where PCs can gain reputation for their deeds and then have that reputation carry forward and and gamify that in later uh, encounters or story. Teos, do you want to give us a summary of yeah. this system?
1: Sure. In the blog, the idea is that the players will do something that the DM thinks, you know, yeah, there could be people hearing about that. So you track this event as a sort of one line summary, like number one, defeated the dragon by cunning, recovered the sword of pain from its horde. Whenever the PCs meet someone after that who may have heard of something from their reputation list, the players roll dice, one for each of the events that are on the reputation. So if you have done three things so far, they would roll three dice. And the size of the dice can vary by campaign so you can have d6 for low heroic campaigns d20 where you're doing lots of amazing things the dm rolls one die of the same size and if the die is less than or equal to the number of exploits the group is recognized if the die matches the value of any of the dice the players roll so it's going to happen more over time then the story ends up being bent exaggerated or otherwise changed and i think that's a fun way a simple fun system for tracking how people react to the deeds your party has done. And I love that idea of it being exaggerated change somewhat, you know, eventually quite often. And that's
0: great. Yeah, this, th- I, I like the simple, the simplicity. That's that's the mm-hmm. uh, noun I'm looking for. I love the simplicity of this system. As the game master, you can always just say, well, I'm I'm deciding that the town has heard this because it's going to be good for the story. Yeah. Or I've decided yeah. they're not because of what I have planned. It wouldn't make sense. But if you're in that in-between and you just want the dice to prompt you to, to do something different, this, a system like this is, is really cool. Uh, I don't know if I would use the system as it is, especially that chart at the end. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. That seemed to go it, – it gave some possible ideas but some of them wouldn't always make sense for the specific thing that you might gain a reputation for. Uh, So it's not like the perfect system where it's going to fit all your reputation system needs, but it's a good starting point from which you could iterate. Mm -hmm. You could either simplify it even more or you could start adding like negative reputation and, and start messing around with it there as well. Uh, with just a little bit of tweaking.
1: Yeah, that's what I like about it. It's like a a nice basic idea that doesn't try to go too far beyond that initial idea. And from that idea, you can probably do something fun in your own campaign. Mm
0: -hmm. Now a little bit of creator and crowdfunding news. Next week, a week from this week, Ghostfire Gaming and its partnership with Eldermancy are going to be launching a Kickstarter called the Seeker's Guide to Enchanting Emporiums. This is the long-awaited sequel to The Seeker's Guide to Twisted Taverns, which was phenomenally funded. Yeah. Uh, th- that sort of started before I joined Ghostfire, and it was one of those things where I looked at it and I'm like, huh, just taverns, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And almost two million dollars, and it was just taverns uh-huh ah okay and then i saw the book recently and i was like oh this is really good yeah this is like lots really really good and uh so now we're doing a another one instead of taverns we're doing emporiums places that sell items specifically magic items so this is going to be filled with magic shops and mystical loot and unique npcs and thrilling plot hooks and some mini adventures and lots and lots of magic items Uh, so you can sign up now at kickstarter.com if you look for the Seeker's Guide to Enchanting Emporiums to be notified when the Kickstarter actually launches very
1: cool well I've got something for you okay uh, Sean that's absolutely free yeah yeah it's uh this came through our discord uh patreon discord folks were pointing out this google doc that has short summaries of all the locations they could find in second edition sigil and some of these Mm. are locations that you don't find in the 5e when we reviewed uh you know the wards they're not in those chapters um so Mm. it's just a google doc link in our show notes um no easy way for me to share it otherwise than that but if you're listening to this and you're not on our patreon discord that receives the show notes just speak up whenever folks need a link we're glad to paste it into youtube uh on request um, but yeah, it's neat and it's just it's simple. You know, just tells you about what these different locations are. But it's, it's a nice way to dress up the wards.
0: Yeah, it would be interesting to see the ones that they did repeat, mm-hmm. how 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 they may have changed or not. Yeah, uh, that's that's an interesting interesting little bit of information and useful resource. And speaking of plainscape, very 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 recently the D and D Adventurers League. Release their newest Dungeon Craft document. If you don't know, Dungeon Craft is the ability for you, yes, you, to create your own Adventures League content, legal Adventures League content, and put it up on the DMs Guild. So this document tells you how you can do uh, Planescape as a setting. Teos, what else did this uh, discuss?
1: Yeah, um, you you can get really nice coverage of this. Uh, Robert Aducci, who follows all things organized play uh, in in depth, he has a nice article on Ian World about it. Link in our show notes or head to IanWorld.org. The full information is on the AI Updates channel. So you have to be on the D&D Discord and be subscribed to it. And then the link in our show notes will take you directly to it. Um, And you can follow that channel in the Discord of your choice if you'd like to. Um, but it, yeah, it's basically the rules for for what you can do to use Planescape as a setting, and it includes the usual information, right? Where it's saying like, hey, you know, treat things well. Don't just like you're. We we have asked you in the past not to blow up Belminster. You know, please don't blow up the planes. You know, honor the setting and so on. But otherwise, you can you can do that for DMs Guild projects and, and create AL legal uh, play experiences. Uh, you know I will note that um, these adventures have typically not sold well i think that that's a problem on the dms guild getting enough sales to sort of validate your time as a sort of like creator but it's an amazing way to get feedback from the community to learn things and to have something out there that you can point to and say hey i made that i'd like to take on a project for someone else as a freelancer in some other capacity or for the ale you know one of the uh large campaigns that they do
0: So all that is there. So that is our news. Thank you for listening. And now we are getting to our main topic today. We are continuing our tour of the 5th edition version of Planescape. For the last few episodes, that's right, for the last few episodes, we covered Sigil and the Outlands. But this week, we are diving headfirst into Mort's Planar Parade the monster book of this three-book trilogy of Planescape goodness. What's in the monster book? Well, to sum it up, 64 pages of monsters. Most of the book is going to be stat blocks, but there are some pages with introduction and guidance, and then a couple pages of planar encounters divided up into tables. So let us dive in. Head first, screaming all the way into the plains. And Teos is holding up some of the wonderful art from the book. What do we get first in our book? We get an introduction called Multiversal Menagerie. Mort is the one who's going to lead us through this look at planar creatures and other planar information. So we get, amongst the stat blocks, little blurbs from Mort. Telling us his take on the monsters, on the planes, on the people who travel the planes. Uh, any initial thoughts, Teos? Before we dive in, I, I like the concept, right? The the idea of
1: using, as they've done with Tasha's and all these other books, someone who speaks. And then Morty is funny. He has this sort of, you know, everything is humorous and 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 uh, and and wry, and it's in its way sarcastic and all of that. Um, uh, so, so i i appreciate that uh i like that the book start, does it's not just monsters it starts with some really useful information and as we'll talk about at the end also has something that that's kind of made to be useful um yeah it's a good to, it's a for what it is it's a good way to organize it it i think a thing that is a big deal with this and we'll talk more about this at the end but it is just 64 pages so you know when, when you look at the book like mm-hmm. it's it's almost its pages are almost outdone by the uh, or equaled by the the thickness of the cover itself. And so. Right. So so it is it is a concise thing. Right. This is this is a small part of the the overall product.
0: Mm-hmm. And we'll get into what that means for this book as we go through it. But first, we get information on using a stat block uh, where you're told to see the monster manual for how to use a stat block. Okay, that saves us a few pages there. Uh, It does specifically call out two things. It calls out weapons or spellcasting that are not normal rules for those weapons or spells that are in a stat block are abnormal because of the creature, not because of the spell or the weapon. Because what you'll see a lot is take a huge uh you know arch demon or demon lord or arch devil mm-hmm. and it says, wait, they use a great sword, but it does 6 d10 damage. Well, if I defeat this uh demon, then the sword that as I wield it must de- do 6 d10 damage. so they specifically call out no the a long sword still does 1 d8 or 1d10 if you're using it in two hands Mm -hmm. as a versatile weapon. Uh, It's only 6d10 because because of who's wielding it, not because of that. And the second thing they call out is monsters sometimes get a class designation, and that is done so because there might be a prerequisite for magic items that they're using. So they want you to know that this creature fills that prerequisite you know, using a wand that only wizards can use because they qualify as a wizard to use that that weapon or item, which I thought was the first. I I get right. Mm-hmm. I I see that. The second one, I I don't know. Am I missing something about why that's important? Or it it's one of those things that just never comes
1: up, and I I feel like we don't even need a rule. Like just go, you know, if you think this thing should be able to use a wizard staff. Good grief. Do it. Like, why why would yeah. you want or need some sort of keyword to enable that, yeah. right? Like, I, I just, it's, right. sometimes I think D&D, especially in fifth edition, gets caught up in its own self around its, the logic of its language.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's okay. Like, just, it doesn't have, I don't think people gain much through this. And and just, it's more yeah. space eaten up for no reason. If you're not going to use it as a keyword that Im- really impacts things, just strip that out of there. I don't need to know that every undead doesn't breathe except for three. Just I can think I can make that call.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I guess I as I was running it through my head, I guess it's for the same reason as the original point, which is if if a creature has a wand that only wizards are supposed to use, and the characters take the wand and they're like, well, this this demon isn't a wizard, <laughs> so this must be a you know staff of wizardry that. Anyone can use, not just wizards, right? Um, so that must be must be why. I could see it. I I wish it didn't have to be there. I guess is yeah. is the, uh, the the long and the short of that.
1: There's this stat blocks by challenge rating table, and I think a lot of times DMs out there are curious. You know, what's the the breadth of this? And it goes from zero to 26. Though it's worth noting, there are only three monsters that are 20, 22, 26. Um, there are a good number that are 10 and above maybe I don't know not quite half of maybe a third are in the tens Um, and then there are a lot that are nine and lower and that might be a little bit surprising I think to me a lot of these monsters when I looked up in the book I thought to myself oh this is probably like a cr10 creature oh no it's four you know and and on one hand, that means that you can have planar adventures at any level, which is certainly historically true with Sigil, right? You know, level one adventures in Sigil. Um, but but it, if you are expecting this to be a book of, you know, CR 20 and higher creatures, n- no, it, it will not be that. It, it's a breadth kind of typical of most monster products.
0: Yeah. And one thing about this chart that I found interesting just in terms of usage was I, I didn't look at the physical book. I looked at mm-hmm. D D beyond and you can sort by CR by stat block name or by creature type, mm-hmm. which is the first time I've seen that, that I've been able to do that. Now, maybe it, it's, you've always been able to, and I've just never noted it, but I, I love the fact that I could just say, Oh, I'm going to sort by CR. I need a CR seven monster. Okay. There they are. Or, Oh, I need an aberration. I'm going to sort by creature type. And I get all the aberrations listed. Thought that was pretty, pretty nifty. And one of the positives of having a book that's digital. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it shows you that actually there are a lot of humanoids here. There are a lot of celestials, right? Those are the two mm-hmm. types you'll see the most of. And I think I wouldn't have expected that necessarily, right? I, it, you know, mm-hmm. again, like may, may not quite fit what you think uh, the product would provide. Yeah.
0: I want my plant. I want my extra planar plants or oozes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess I'll have to make my own. You, you get one, so, and but, it's
1: CR one or zero, yeah,
0: I think. Ex- exactly. Uh, so then we move on to petitioners. The, this this was where I started scratching my head. Um, mm-hmm. So petitioners. This is what we. This is the exact text for for the the creature petitioners are former mortals they've lived ceased living and now exist on outer planes they typically inhabit a plane that shares their alignment or the realm of a deity they worship some however become lost and wander the planes or make new homes for themselves elsewhere on the great wheel uh and it tells uh two features you can add to make a creature uh, a a The first is plane locked. They can't leave the plane they're on, even through portals. The second is soul shape. They can be resurrected only through true resurrection or a wish spell. And even then, they may choose to remain a petitioner instead of going back to their mortal form. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading this going, if I had never read any other D&D content, what is a petitioner? I understand they're former mortals. I understand that they've died and now exist in the outer planes. So what? What does that mean? what and then so then uh, we get a a uh, section called Death and the Planes," And it sort of answers it, but not really. It says that mortals that die have their souls returned to the outer planes. They go wherever their alignment says they should go. Or if they worshipped a deity, they may go to that plane where um, the deity that they worshipped resides. If you kill a petitioner, um, it actually doesn't may... does say that.
1: I think you're adding more than it says. Oh.
0: Uh maybe, yeah.
1: You're I, adding I more. I, it says less than you just said. I think
0: it just that, says that's true. It,
1: it does. I they, thought they it may are... have
0: said that. They return as
1: petitioners in far-flung reaches of the outer planes. There they manifest as idealized versions of themselves. Um, And and something about sharing its alignment, it it can reconstitute on a plane that shares its alignment after 100 years or it might choose to become one with that plane and never return Okay. when it's destroyed. Um, and that when it, this is interesting, a creature that reforms on the planes multiple times becomes increasingly dissimilar from its original mortal form. I want to talk about that later, put a in it. But, but yeah, yeah, go ahead with your thought, because I think that is really interesting.
0: Yeah. So all of this c- could be interesting, but I don't know what it means. What mm. does it mean in the larger scale of these these outer plates? Are these petitioners important? or are they just window dressing if they're yeah. just window dressing then why are they here if i come across a petitioner in a certain realm if it's in a certain outer plane what what's that like what are they trying to do do they have goals do they have goals based on the plane that they're on do they want something do they not want something can they give me information what do they what do they have i, I just don't know and so like an idealized version of themselves what does that mean does that mean someone becomes what they think they are the best version of or the worst version of themselves if it's a, I, I i don't yeah. get what that means and maybe they were afraid to push the Forgotten
1: Realms view, where you end up in Kelimvor's role, and before that it was Cyric, or to go to the Raven Queen, you know, do, do you go to Greyhawk and talk about Nerol? Because there are these conflicting views. I think it's often been novels that have pushed this role mm-hmm. of the petitioner, and then designers have run with it without maybe ever really fully thinking through And Maybe they were a little... Right maybe they held back from talking about it because they were worried that that setting down one one viewpoint would make it obvious but as you said it's re- it's a really interesting concept you know what happens to someone when they die do they go straight to the outer planes do they go to do they go to an intermediate place what is the process by which you end up not in one of those places the destination outer plane you know how would you end up in sigil and and how do people feel about a petitioner wandering around sigil or the outlands like yeah. that that is Kind of interesting, but it, yeah, I, I agree with you now that I I hadn't thought about it reading it because I've got these ideas of what petitioners are in my brain, but you're right. It right. doesn't really tell you what to do with this.
0: Yeah. And the very, the word itself, you know, petitioner, you are petitioning for something.
1: Yeah.
0: And so the question, the immediate question just based on the word is, what are you petitioning for? Yeah. What is it that you want? And I think the idea is supposed to be, you are trying to get to your final resting yes. place. But you need to do something to get there. You need to prove it, right? Yeah. The pearly gates where you have to give a reckoning for all your life is one way to look at it, right? Um, Balance your weigh your good vice, your vices versus your yeah. virtues, right? Yeah. There's all these different things that could be, but we don't see petitioners petitioning. We don't get it explained right. to us. And so that's what I would use the gate gatehouse well, for. And, and Sean, I mean, if that's what they are,
1: then this text should be reinforcing that because the number one thing, unless they've given up, they should be trying to get to their destination and their proper right. afterlife. And they don't say that? Like, that's like, wait, wait yeah. what? Because that's the thing. That's what we're doing here, right? Like, And right. that should be the interesting thing. You meet a petitioner, what is the place they're trying to go to? Or, or do they not even know, right? That could be really cool adventure fodder, but you don't. you're not given yeah. those raw ingredients or the recipe here that leads to what to do with a petitioner.
0: Yeah. So yeah. So if you are actually in the your final resting place, if you're at the final, you're, you you sh- should be no longer a petitioner, right? Right. You've, right. you've gotten there. <laughs> um, now you maybe there's an area of that plane where you are held until you can go to a your you know another place within that plane. But it's just there's so much here that's ripe for story, ripe yeah. for adventuring. Mm-hmm. you have to find a petitioner and help them. You have to stop a petitioner from getting to the final resting place, right All of these things are great adventure hooks or uh, story points, but we need to know that it's a thing before we can use it.
1: and it, and and you know you've got a note here about petitioners the, the gate towns could be places where petitioners go. Right, like that could be the key. Mm -hmm. And and you're right, it makes a lot of sense that if you are a petitioner, you would, and you found yourself in Sigil, you'd want to get to the gate town. So you'd be looking for Mm -hmm. that gate. If you're in a gate town, you want to get into that plane, but maybe you can't. And boy, that creates a lot of ideas, but it Mm -hmm. also creates purpose for the gate towns and for the factions, Mm -hmm. because the factions could be going after these petitioners saying, hey, no, no, join us instead. Or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, let me help you get to the plane I think you should go to rather than the one that maybe you thought right. you should go to. Were you really that close to mistra You know, come on, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. There's some other. Right. Have you yeah. heard of the Greyhawk magic deities? <laughs> come over this way. I mean, yeah. there could be some really interesting things there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cool. Or if you're if you know of a soul that's heading for a place that they definitely don't want to go to, you've been bad, you're on your way to the nine hells, and it's not going to be pleasant for you once yeah. you get there, right you you could try to help people n- not be sent there. So one town could be helping people get there, but there's a block. One could be helping people escape from there, but there's a block. Yeah. Um, so you know, mm. it's it's great stuff. But it's about 50 words in the book. uh, And it's just so much more needs to be talked about there. Good catch. Uh, Next, we get planar influences. And this is a very long section of the book that tells us what happens when a creature is steeped in one uh, the influence of a plane so if you spend time in an outer plane or an area under that plane's influence like a gate town perhaps yeah. you may have your alignment moved toward that plane if you're there long enough uh which yeah it, it makes sense it it's something that i could see happening and and uh it, it does, and, and
1: I don't know if this is the right place to mention this, though, but there's been this interesting conversation on our Discord about comparing 2e to 5e, and we talked about last episode how we were marking on how the, the gate towns, the, the kind of story you hear is, well, if a gate town becomes too much like its plane, it just gets absorbed into its plane, and but you can't go into the gate town that, you know, is for pandemonium, and stop the winds or do that in any way that feels measurable um, or impactful because the the plane sort of wins in the end it's either going to absorb it or keep pushing these influences on it so that's just the way it is but what, what the folks on our Discord were talking about is how in 2e the emphasis and, and there were some quotes shared was really on how a plane could be changed and that place could be pulled out of that plane and end up in another plane And that actually is a really important change of emphasis where you could now do things, right? You could say, hey, let's take this town and move it from the hells to another place, right? Mm -hmm. Move it, uh, change its nature and and have a lasting impact. I I like that emphasis better. Um, But this whole section is really under that assumption that, hey, the presence of the planes will change you. Mm-hmm. and you, therefore creatures that are touched by a particular plane, here's how you can represent them in the game. And overall, I have the feeling that this section is a little too like what a librarian, uh, <laughs> you know, bio, someone in biology would do, rather than the game aspect of it. Because a lot of these, they're all traits, and the traits that you add to monsters are sometimes a little too like because this is the clinical thing that happens, rather than being cool, fun expressions of what these things could do for those particular planes to make the game engaging and interesting and oh, you know, this thing is abyssal touched, right? Sometimes it's a little just flat because oh well that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I I think there I think there's a spectrum. Of things that you can do and it's not a spectrum that's just on one plane mm-hmm. not plane in the sense of you know yeah. uh, dimensions <laughs> not plane in the sense of planescape because you you okay I'm going to run a story in in the abyss or the abyss's gate town I want to show that the spiders that the the characters fight here are abyssal spiders not normal giant spiders so what can I do I like I like that it lists some cosmetic things. They've mm-hmm. got black blood, they have horns, they have scales. I mm-hmm. like the trying to figure out how to say this diplomatically and uh thoroughly. <laughs> I I like that there are I like that there are some changes here. But, like you said, some of them are things that the players will never engage with. The, a creature is poison tolerant if it's from the abyss. Unless the characters use poison, which is rare. Eh, okay. Um, and, it doesn't really and also, tell me anything.
1: Does that tell me it's from the abyss? Because I don't know that I think of the abyss as just being filled with poison. Yeah. In fact, it's really right. low on my list of things I think of, unless we're talking about a
0: Particular plane or two you know yeah suckck yeah, plane sure you know and 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 that that was the second part of this is some of them don't make any sense in the abyss a, a a creature might deal double damage to objects uh as a trait because it's an abyssal something I I have no idea why that makes sense uh other than it knocks down big things because of the the blood war maybe yeah. i guess another way- how many times are the monsters going to go after the characters and deal double damage to objects uh, another now- thing
1: is if you take yeah. if you just look at the traits can you guess the plane right like merry music right. whenever the creature casts a spell or makes a spell attack the faint sound of merry music can be heard and by those affected by its magic recklessness at the start of its turn it gains advantage on attack rolls during that turn but attack rolls against the creature have advantage so it kind of rages reckless attack yeah. from, from barbarian uh that's arborea and yeah okay um i guess you know like maybe but i you know i'm not so sure <laughs> and and it's it's sort of like that like i like the overall concept of these and and there are some neat you know, traits here that are fun. I mean, I love monster powers, right? I mean, that's one of the things we did for Forge of Foes was to, to add things like this that say, like when you wanna make a monster that's of a particular kind, you know, it's a big hulking brute, then let's give it something that does it. But the emphasis we tried to do is things like, if, if you're trying to represent a giant, then when it hits you, it shoves you back, right? Or when it mm-hmm. slams its foot down on the ground, it might shake the ground and people fall around it right those are things that really clearly represent what this creature is about and i don't feel that there is that same equivalent like deep yeah this is what it does um but it's a lot of space in this book so
0: yeah and it's if we go back to third edition and fourth edition we had templates okay mm-hmm. right? we had abyssal we had demonic we had and it feels like this is what they want to, wanted to do but either didn't feel like they could or didn't feel like they should. So they just sort of picked a couple of things and added them. And some of them didn't make sense. And some of them you would never know, as we mentioned earlier. Um, And some of them are cool, Mm -hmm. but just don't. They just don't quite get across either story-wise or mechanically What I, as the game master, Mm -hmm. either want to do or need to do to really make this something memorable for the players. Mm -hmm. And maybe they just couldn't. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe the designers were told, no, we can't make templates. So just do your best to make powers that sort of, without changing things too much. But even then, some of them are huge, like pet tactics, right? That's huge. Mm-hmm. That's a super powerful. Yeah. Uh, and and then other ones are like, gain, like hear tinkling sounds when you cast spells, hear clanking sounds or hammering sounds when you cast spells or use magic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's yeah, like back the, tactics.
1: Yeah. Uh, and are things like, you know, structural repair for something from Mechanus, it can uh be in continuous physical contact with a non-magical object for one minute to repair the objects as if it cast mending okay that'll probably never come up you know but but it's it's so 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 they're all over the place in terms of how applicable they are on the other hand the lightning rod while it may not come up very often is fun it um it can bounce lightning damage uh to other creatures um which is kind of neat um and it can't be reduced below one hit point by lightning and so that you know that is kind of fun even if it doesn't come up very often i like it a lot there are some neat ones here but but they're a little bit all over and i do this is another thing where i wish the book would say but i don't know that the 5e designers as a department believe in this that you the dm should really alter these to be whatever you want them to be and that this is not a truth <laughs> like or not mm-hmm. the only truth right like sometimes it feels like it's a little bit like some of these feel like they are really like prescriptive this is what these creatures are
0: mm-hmm. yeah so i i appreciate the effort and i even appreciate the the follow through on some of them uh mm-hmm. i love the fact that like in limbo uh random thaumaturgy effects go off Okay, that's I could have fun with that. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you score a critical hit or uh, perform a critical hit or receive a critical hit, random things happen. All right, mm-hmm. that's going to happen right. during a combat. Mm-hmm. Um, a slot tadpole erupts from you upon your death if you're a creature from Limbo. Okay, cool. I could, I could have fun with that. So like Limbo, yeah. I'm like, cool, I'm all about that. Some of the other ones, I just... Needs a little more oomph, a little more mechanical oomph, and a little more story oomph, I think. Yeah. Yep. But that complete list is there. So you can uh, pick and choose from them if you want to make your own versions that fit your needs very well.
1: Yeah. And then Then, you get um, this little section here that denizens of the Outlands, which is trying to kind of provide little encounter ideas by type, aberrations, beasts, celestials. And it is good in that it's trying to answer this question of like, you know, let's forget about being in a particular plane. What if I have a particular type of creature? What might I be doing here? And what are some, you know, here are four possible quests. and there is one that's really funny. I think I think it was in this area that there was a, uh, oh yeah, a dejected red slad wishes to be reunited with its slad tadpole, but it isn't certain where or in what it implanted its egg. <laughs> Hilarious. But mm-hmm. in general, what I found these, these are again sort of like little quest bits that almost detract from whatever it is that you're probably trying to run. You know, it's, it's a little side shunt thing rather than something you can really use as the heart of what you're working on. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the axe-wielding flump influenced by Ysgard, who's uh, questing mm-hmm. across the land seeking legendary beasts to slay and epic songs to sing. Unless we're going to modify that flump, it still has seven hit points and it's not going to last very long in this story. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right, what'd you think I, of this little section? Yeah, it it was it was sort of the same with me, and then I thought back to all how popular on the DMs guild a series or several series is of uh products called encounters in mm. encounters in Sharn, encounters in Avernus, encounters in I checked back for my sales on the DMs Guild this month. Like the four most popular products that I contributed to, so I could see the sales of, were those hmm. those products. Wow. Encounters in Baldur's Gate is like my most popular set selling. I only you know contributed twenty or so encounters, but they are so popular that there must be a call for this. I don't necessarily want it in my core books right and yeah. I want I I want other things mm-hmm. but I have a feeling that there is an audience for this and so wizards designers you know planners producers are serving that need by putting these things in
1: here yeah I guess not
0: I for would, me but I, I can would, understand it
1: I would wonder there are a lot of ways you can do this, right? So like I can create a random encounter table and there's also a random encounter section here and I can say 2D4 slot. I can say one slot seeking its tadpole. Mm-hmm. And then I can get to maybe the, like say Tomb of Annihilation has these, like a paragraph for each, which mm-hmm. is what I think what those encounters in yeah. often did. right? And there was some really good design care Taken in those. And and mm-hmm. the ones that I've looked at, I, I may have all of them, but when I, I remember looking at them and thinking, these are neat, fun ideas, right? There are some cool concepts that I can easily flesh into a whole encounter. And they tend to be like an encounter, right? So it's the idea of like mm-hmm. if I were to say, um, a mode run surrounded by um, slot has information vital to your quest. Mm-hmm. That is something that works in my campaign. A slide seeking to find its tadpole, I don't know, maybe, it might be a distraction, right? Like, So there, there, there are different ways you can structure these, and I'd be curious if you really dug into the data, what is it that people want? I'm not saying I know, but, but I, I, I would think that there's some, somewhere in that variability, we're either serving or not serving our audience. I worry that this is too much of the not serving an audience that, that there aren't I, enough ideas here to, to really use and how to get utility out of
0: but what do right we yeah well that, that's the thing right i I agree with you in this sense like I said I could come up with these things um but I don't know if everybody could mm-hmm. uh yeah, and, yeah and,
1: so, and maybe even going off of what we heard when we talked what to, to folks in the audience at um our seminar at game hall you know there was this idea of like I want to see ways that I can create campaigns in my, and, and do things in my own homebrew worlds because so many folks are running just homebrew stuff, not actual published adventures. They may buy the published adventure, but they tear it apart for pieces. So I think, again, the more that this is like an actual building block that you can pull into your mm-hmm. homebrew, then that also serves a purpose. But if it's too light, then it might not, right? But if it shows you the kinds of stories you can create, then it becomes more useful.
0: Mm-hmm yes so then we get to from denizens of the outlands uh we get a planar encounter section where we encounters in the uh, chaotic planes and the evil planes and the good planes neutral planes etc etc and i think that the same same mm-hmm. thing follows here yeah. um uh, you know it's interesting maybe not quite in depth enough but you know, i don't need 1d4 razor vine blights uh as just I have the, the book monster book in front of me I, I get it I could just go through and do that on my own I need a little bit more
1: chaotic planar encounters one d6 tyrannodons
0: okay mm-hmm. like yeah wouldn't have thought of that but okay I guess yeah yep yeah. uh yeah so like like you were saying Taos here I agree that there's not enough that there needs to be mm-hmm. give me a little bit of a story give me a little bit of something to to role-play a little bit of something to add to the story that my players and I are telling. Uh, But okay, cool. Now we get to the meat of this book, which is the bestiary A to Z. Uh, Obviously we're not going to go through all of the monsters, but what are some highlights that you noticed?
1: So there are a number of groupings by type where you get several monsters. And in fact, maybe more than half the monsters are in that kind of situation so like there are two cranium rats a cranium rat a cranium rat swarm there are three demodans uh three githzerai uh three gardenals five modrons um these romani which are living metal bipedal creatures there are three types of romani uh they all start with the letters for the uh element au Aramak, huperlach so somebody really liked the periodic table, uh, various mm-hmm. age categories, the time dragon, and then there's some individual ones that are notable, like the Byronoloth, a uh, really weird ancient Yugaloth, CR 17, the Dabas we've talked about, um, Dark Weaver, this creepy spider that wants to taste things. The Eater of Knowledge is pretty cool, it's a blood brain, large aberration. Looks like I, I held it up one point, looks like a bunch of kind of blood, like a blood golem kind of thing. And it can stun you and extract your brain. And one of the things is it does is it gets sent out there to, like, get information and bring it back to, like, the mind flares it serves. Um, the Koliarut, which is this uh, inevitable, and to represent its inevitable nature in its CR20, it does things like always hit. Right? It just knows what to do and enforces laws, I guess, of swords. Um, yeah, what, what what else seemed interesting to you, Sean?
0: Uh I, I did like the fact that they gave more than one of each type because that gives you flexibility as a DM. Um, other than that, I just, yeah, I thought, okay, cool. It's a planar monster manual. Um, we haven't had a lot of planar beings other than demons and devils. So let's let's do it. I thought it, yep, there's a picture. I, I want to talk
1: of- about this Flumph Modron. Okay. That's what that is, isn't it? Am I making that up? That looks like a flump Modron. Uh,
0: lower lower the book a little bit. <laughs> uh,
1: so it's these oh, little guys. They're like, it's like a...
0: Okay. Let, let me look. Modrons. Uh, that is not
1: what I expected from a Modron, but there it is. And, there, and there's some big ones and medium
0: ones. And... Oh, I see. Okay. I see what you're looking at. Huh. That is, they look like little squids, <laughs> little little squidrons. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, uh, not, I'm sure.
1: not sure we needed that guy, but we have him. So <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> uh, no, I did I, like the, the Vargul yeah. reflection. It's just CR one, but it's it the it's like a Vargul, right? So it's the the just the head with like kind of like tendrils at the bottom, and uh, it's horrible, nasty out of nightmares. But the head looks like whatever the creature was. And it can curse you to become one. It can also make itself look like your head as it fights you to frighten you. I thought that was a good
0: move. Yeah. Vargoyles are one of those really nasty, both in terms of their history and their description, as well as what they actually do if they if they defeat you. So yeah. <laughs> Horrible. Uh then we also get faction agents uh in this portion of the bestiary and these are 12 uh ascendant faction members so in general there's one stat block per faction so if you need a doom guard member if you need a harmonium member a transcendent order uh you get two of those but otherwise it's it's just one so you can sort of get an idea for what they what they do mm-hmm. uh what are your thoughts on those
1: the CIs, CRs vary, and I guess they're just trying to give you a variety, so I guess it's better than not, but but it, it you know, it may not fit what you want, or whatever story you're telling when you're interacting with the harmonium or, you know, the uh, um, transcendent order, you know, is there a particular CR that they should be? Mm, I don't know. So they just tend to be kind of sort of medium CRs, medium, medium low. And, and that made me think, well, you know, like this is fine, but maybe as a DM, what I need is more a system by which I can make anything a member of the Doom Guard, anything, yep. you know, a member of of any of these twelve factions, to me would have been a little better, right? Um and 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 I'm not sure that this is as useful as it could be. Like, could you just take generic stat blocks and have Traits and powers that you add to them based on them, right? That's what we did for Forge of Foes. And that's what I would use really for faction agents because you can take Forge of Foes, like we talked about in our last episode, you can just even online, find that core stat block for a given CR. So it's CR blah, here's my core stat block. Now I could take the things that are in this, these stat blocks here for these faction agents. And then I can just use Forge of Foes to bring down to the power level that it should be. What's the attack, save, damage, whatever. And that to me is a lot more useful because I get like one bleak cabal member that's a half orc, you know. But what about making it an elf or a devil or a whatever, right? Like because this is planescape, it shouldn't just be this humanoid that usually is what all these are—is just humanoid members of it. And maybe I want, I want to make it a boss or a minion because if I'm writing an adventure that deals with this doom guard, I'm not going to work with just two stat blocks, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah and i i wrote the same thing in my notes um we had the planar influences which you know while we didn't love every single one of them at least it could move us in the right direction just i would have loved to see the same thing here mm-hmm. members of the bleak cabal you could take the veteran stat block and you can add mm-hmm. this yeah you know and just give the one cool thing Uh, and you know if they're cr if you're using cr three or lower give them this one cool thing if it's three to nine give them these two cool things and that way we know that they're a bleak cabal member um, and they have this cool thing and we see it once okay it's just a one off oh we see it (laughs) now there's a group of them that are all doing this thing now we know uh, and it adds to the story as well yeah. as to the game mechanics of of this game that we play.
1: And we've seen that before. I know this because we put it in ACK Inc. Uh, the Acquisitions Incorporated book has factions in it and it has that kind of approach to it, right? Just add this trait to it, including sort of yeah. attack things that they do and stuff to represent their nature or their position. Yep.
0: So anything else? What are our overall thoughts here on this second book, of the Planescape trilogy. I thought if I think about like
1: other similar books, which there isn't a whole lot that, you know, is a slipcase, but but sort of setting books that are sort of like this, I think that in general the execution is better than other similar books, even if we're being a little critical in our sort of discussion or analysis. Um the generally the monsters do evocative things. They do a solid job of being exciting and tell the story of the creature. The damage could often be higher, but you can use Forge of Foes for that. Um, I think the selection of monsters is okay. It's a variety of planar creatures. It may or may not fit the kind of story you want to tell. You know, it's interesting. You can't populate like a given gate town with them, right? Like if you're in the Beastlands gate town of Faunel, you got Gardinals, maybe a couple of others from this book. That's all you've really got, you know? And so do you want to put the Modrons in your <laughs> beast town? You know, I don't know what you're doing. Uh, You got to go to other books for that, Um, but it's a short book, right? So, so that's the kind of thing it does. Um, One thing I noticed is layout issues and I'll see if I can hold this up for folks watching the video, but they tried so hard to cram things that they're weird, like big, you know, like that's a big blank spot Mm. and it's because the art for it is actually in that big picture Uh, But then they're also trying to like often cram other bits all into, you know, one place, like really trying to make it all fit onto a page. And so it just feels like this book, they tried really hard to make it only 64 pages. And it kind of wants to sometimes be a different size, I feel like, looking at, at the layout of it.
0: Okay, I, I only looked on uh, DMV mm-hmm. on, so I didn't yep. get that uh, get that yeah. feeling, but makes we, it makes sense. You know,
1: if you were to take this and make it soft cover, and instead give me that pages, those pages back, you know, what could this be, right? I,
0: yeah. And that's something that you actually could do with a box set, mm-hmm. right? You could have two hard covers, yeah. uh, and then put a put a soft cover in there, uh maybe they cut price down i don't know yeah interesting uh any any other overall thoughts i i agree with you i think this was for what they could do in 64 pages i think it contained a lot of good information Mm -hmm. uh the monsters everyone loves monsters and if you are a relatively experienced dm you can pull apart these monsters and put them back together in ways that are better for your campaign, for your players, for your story. So I think in that sense, it, it all works out and it all makes sense. Cool. Yeah. Agreed. All right. So we have finished with book two in only one episode because next time we are going to move on to book three, which is the adventure called turn of fortune's wheel and we will go through it. We will pick it apart. We will tell you what we think of the adventure, both as an adventure and as an introduction and a blueprint for how adventures should run in this Planescape setting. Thank you so much, listeners, for doing what you do, which is Mm -hmm. letting us invade your ear holes, and in some cases, if you watch on YouTube, your eye holes, for yet another week. Uh, Thank you for those of you who fill in our Patreon so nicely. Um, Thank you to our Master of Dungeon supporters. A special shout-out goes to our Master of Realm supporters in our show notes. And our Masters of the Multiverse, well, you know what happens. You get mentioned right now. Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, DM Chad, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon. Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neil, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Robert Pasley, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Simonse, David Somerville from Prismanox.com, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you. If you would like to become a patron of our show, you can indeed do that. And we would indeed appreciate that. You can do so by going to patreon.com masteringdnd also, if you get a chance, leave us a review on Apple Podcast or by whatever means you listen to the podcast, because that helps up our visibility, especially if you have nice, th- nice things to say. And you can also subscribe to us on YouTube, which is very handy as well. So, Teos, where can people find you and mm-hmm. what have you been up to lately on social medias?
1: Find me at alphastream.org. Uh, this week I'm going to share a video of me playing through the 3D uh, play, uh, spell jammer that's in the Neverwinter games. If you want to, like, be like, what does it look like to stand on the deck of a ship and look around at the stars and fight, you know, creatures on planets and bounce around on an asteroid with very low gravity, you'll be able to see that this week. What are
0: you up to, Sean? Nice. I am up to a lot, but nothing that is so important that I have to mention it on this show. But sometimes I mention it on social media, so you can follow me on all the social medias that are out there popular, at Sean Merwin. The podcast is also on various social medias, at Mastering D&D. Join our community, ask questions on our Patreon Discord, or leave comments on our YouTube channel, mastering dungeons so Teos, we've seen the menagerie of monsters that are out there in the planar multiverse what are we going to do now
1: Uh, i'm going to go petition WizKids to have that flump modron made into a miniature i clearly need that so that you know you can take a flump and then have battle mode flump you know that's all encased in metal Mm
0: mm-hmm And I'm going to go petition the higher powers to give me another day in this week (laughs) so I can get my work done. (laughs)